welcome to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick. Brunch is being served right here at 261 Moore Street, back here in Brooklyn, New York. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime. Thanks for having me, Katie. Oh, Patrick, I couldn't do it without you, Patrick Martins. And our guest today is uh, the very distinguished... Eric Asimov. But first, I must mention that our show is being sponsored by the Hearst Ranch. And the Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. And I want to thank my friend Brian Kenny from Hearst Ranch, who I call Chateaubriand, um, and how he is <laughs> helping us do our annual eighth cattle shipment to Americans throughout the country. So uh, It's an awesome deal. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. I mean, there is no place else you're going to find grass-fed beef from this kind of a ranch and this kind of operation. For It, it averages out to about $8 a pound, something like yeah. that. It's unbelievable. And while they're not a struggling farmer, the Hearst family, I would still say they how much I admire them. 55,000 acres of land. And a whole cowboy culture, which yeah. is really dying out, but which exists pretty strongly on their property. So. Absolutely. Well, let's dive right into it with our fabulous guest, Eric Asimov. It's a tremendous pleasure and an My honor pleasure. to welcome you here to our radio station. Eric, thanks for making the trek out. Um, so, well, let's, let's start at the very beginning. You've been uh, writing, you've become the wine critic for the Times, but you had... Uh, best restaurants under 25 for quite a few years you've had quite the the long stretch there so how did you become a wine expert it was so funny like to to think like how much wine had you tasted before becoming the wine editor for the new york times food section Uh, how far back do you want me to go all the way (laughs) all the way are we talking like five six seven years old no, not that old, but uh, <laughs> you know there was a, a, a an epiphany at maybe fourteen. I like that. Uh, as as always happened back in the seventies, it took place in Paris. Mm-hmm. Oh, I and had my same epiphany there too. Yeah. So did Alice Waters, or in France, a lot mm-hmm. of people had their epiphany. Julia Child at fourteen. Yeah, that's the way it was in in the old days. And uh, after that point, my my goal came became to uh, never be hungry, never be thirsty, always eat something that was really, really good, and always uh, uh, be on the lookout for that next good meal. And when you um, started doing the the, uh, the the blog and the or the the um, reviews, how how did you pick your wines? Like, how did you know what to get? Where did you where did you start sourcing? When from? I when I started writing full time about wine, yeah. Well, um, if, if you're Writing about wine, if you're writing about food, if you're writing about anything, you you have kind of an idea of of points that you want to make mm-hmm. along the way. And so I've always got a a, a a mental list of wines that I want to write about, regions that I want to talk about, issues, personalities, um, and so on. So you know, it's uh, I think a lot of people assume that writing about wine is just. Uh, 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 tasting something that's in a glass and, and making up uh, florid adjectives and, uh, and and coming up with a numerical rating, but to me, that's the the least interesting part about writing about wine. 
Hmm. Interesting. So you say personalities. So someone might, uh, you know, have a, an unusual personality. Like I'm thinking of that Bonnie Dune guy or something like someone has just a crazy personality. They want to make wine and they make unusual tasting wines. And that might inspire you to say this deserves attention or is well, it all in the wine? It's it's not nearly all in the wine. I think what you uh, with with great wines and, and by that I don't mean expensive wines. I mean, uh, really expressive wines. Uh, what you have in the glass is the kind of the uh, the result of of maybe uh, years of, of culture, of history, of effort, of of people, of personalities uh, coming together, and what you're actually drinking is is a is a cultural expression. It, it expresses those feelings and and that history. And uh, to me, the most interesting wines um, have this background behind them, and and that's what I'm interesting interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it's a it's a person like uh, Randall Graham of of Bonnie Dune, mm-hmm. who's um, not just doing wild and wacky things, but you know has some sort of uh, 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 rationale that perhaps is only evident to him. But uh, but somehow comes out in his wine. But um, it could also be some guy whose uh, family has made Beaujolais for for centuries and and has faced all kinds of ups and downs in in history. Or uh, some guy in 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 Italy in Sicily who's planted a vineyard on on an active volcano. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what what's the driving force there? What's the rationale? These are. Uh, stories and, and great wines have a have a story to tell that goes way beyond uh, you know uh, aromas of raspberries or whatever. Now, I mean, now though we once had Peter Kaminsky and we've had him on a couple of times, and he was big into these vocabulary words that he could apply to food tastes and things like that. So, I mean, you mentioned the word expressive. Um, how would you define an expressive wine? Like it is multi-layered. It gives you different tastes over time. Like my guess, our question was, uh, how do you pick a good wine? You know, that's a little separate from what you just said about what you write. All right. Well, you know, that's those are two very different questions, I guess. And and how you pick a good wine? Um, that's a a uh, that's a question that. That books have been written about and <laughs> and courses have been written about and on the one hand uh, you know there's the genre of books that says everything you need to know to pick a good wine and, and they've covered that in in you know 150 pages and uh, if you want to waste 25 bucks on a book buy that one mm-hmm. right because learning how to pick a good wine really you know, it's it's like learning anything else uh, of, of of skill, and and you know, if you want to learn how to to play golf, you can't just read a book about right. it. And, you got to play. Think, yeah, you got to play, and you got to do it for years. And um, you know, I don't even play golf. Uh, I don't know why that came to mind, but it's it's a kind <laughs> it's a kind of maddening thing that drives people who even do it for years crazy because you don't always get it right and that's part of the beauty of of wine at least there's there's no you don't know that you're always going to pick the right wine it's a it's a long process of experimentation and curiosity and and if you care enough to to go deep into a subject Mm -hmm. like anything else but do you like say you were going into a wine shop and you knew you wanted uh you know 
Syrah grape or something like that. You had already figured out that what you like is this kind of grape and from this country. Would you depend on, say, the distributor as much as you would on the vineyard? Or, or are there clues on or, the label? Yeah. There, there are a lot of, of good techniques for, for learning how to, to pick the best wine. And, and um, number one, if you're going to a wine shop, become a uh, find a good sh- wine shop and become a regular and get to know the people there. Mm-hmm. If you're picking at a restaurant, get to know the sommelier or whoever's in, in charge of, of the wine list because they're always going to know the selections better than you are. I mean, you can be an, an, an expert on wine and not not know every producer in, in every particular area. Um, so beyond that, there are also uh, clues for imported wines. You'll see a lot of people the first, once they get to a category that they're curious about, whether it's uh, Sancerre or Rioja or whatever, you turn the bottle around to see who the importer is. That's right. a little bit of a, a of a shorthand because uh, rather than memorize hundreds of producers, if you know that the the taste of a certain importer align more or less with your own, like uh, uh, that's Kermit Lynch's famous. Like, it looks like a medieval boat you know sailboat on the ocean like whenever you see that logo chances are it's going to be a decent wine i mean that's what i've been told well if if his tastes align to yours and you've had that experience yeah um so i i do that uh uh, occasionally i think um you know one of the most uh uh uh, frustrating things for consumers is when they uh cut out a list of wines from a newspaper say that have gotten a, a a a lot of praise and then they go searching for them and they can't find them. Yeah. Um, I've certainly had that experience. Yeah. So you have to, you have to leave room for, for choice there and for, for other people's uh, opinions to, to help you. And, and really that's the, that's the crucial thing. Find a good wine shop and find people, mm-hmm. get to know people there. That's what I've always said. People are always like, Oh, where I'd like to go to a good restaurant. I really want that. I'm like, go to this, uh, your favorite place 10 times in three months or four months. And trust me, you'll get, you know, treated like a King. Uh, yeah. Repetition is a, is a great uh, great lesson. Um, so, how does a new wine get reviewed? I mean, obviously, there's certain people you know in the industry, but if there was uh, some new guy in upstate New York uh, or from France, uh, I mean, how does that process work at, at the Times? Well, it, it works very differently at the Times than it does at, at most other places, and and that's because uh, it's I, I, it's my privilege to work at a newspaper that has. Even in these very trying times for the for the news media, we still have resources to to pay our own way. Most places nowadays uh, need to rely on on getting samples and and will review wines that that are sent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I saw in an interview with Bottle Notes that you said that you guys have a um, a shopper who actually just goes out and buys the bottles. Yeah, I mean, we... we so you just say, I want to try a bunch of Riojas and bring me a selection of those? Yeah, and we'll try to narrow it down a little mm-hmm. bit because it can be, uh, the selection can be overwhelming. And, and um, we, we don't call him our shopper we call him our coordinator <laughs> okay <laughs> because he you know it's it, well, he really he has is. to he's, he has to use a think. lot of uh yeah uh he has to put in a lot of time he has to think about it he has to get to know the area well and, and he has to um, know what you like or at least what you're interested in and understand what his his uh, mission is going to be yeah but uh, so the idea for us is to get a selection of of wines that are generally available to 
consumers and not to privilege those who give us freebies. Right. And we we are lucky enough to have the resources to uh, to maintain that policy. Yeah, absolutely. So there, to answer your questions, w- people can't get their wines reviewed. Mm-hmm. It happens uh, uh, partly as a as a. Uh, a stroke of fortune, depending on which wines our, our coordinator gathers. Um, but there are other reasons also, and I just, and not all the articles I write are are uh, the result of our tasting panels. Um, those I do about half. That accounts for about half the articles. Who are who's on yeah. your tasting Florence panel? Florence Fabricant, right? Well, Florence is is our regular. We have four people, and I generally um, invite two guests usually from the the sommelier community because they are are curious and they very rarely have an axe to grind Mm -hmm. and uh and and who are knowledgeable about the area in in which we're tasting you mean whereas a distributor might have an axe to grind absolutely yeah and everybody in the industry except for the sommelier yeah um and you know, occasionally we've gotten uh, uh, guests who who really have no role in the industry whatsoever, but are, are just uh, kind of enlightened amateurs or or just good company, because that's always important when you're doing a uh, <laughs> tasting together. Mm. How long does it take? How many wines do you taste at a time? Let's put it that way. We taste twenty to twenty-five. Jiminy, and um, enough to make the teeth. You know, red. For, from from. From an ordinary point of view, that would be crazy, um, but you'll see a lot of, of wine professionals who say, oh, you know, I had 182 uh, saint before breakfast today, and it becomes almost like a point of, of bragging. We think we try to draw the limit at, at the number of wines that you can taste, and, and I, I don't even still like... taste. I yeah. Because it's like perfume, isn't it? When you smell too many perfumes, your senses are become overloaded, and then you can't really distinguish the notes anymore at a I, I believe point. that to be true and and uh you know i i've been uh, criticized for that as as huh. you know not having what it takes somehow to be to do a a professional job and i i will dispute that i will also say that um any sort of mass tasting is is by nature a, a compromise um i would think so many wines you really, and especially good wines, need need time and 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 sort of care, and and they change in the glass. They're not one thing, and um, you know, just tasting twenty wines and spitting them out is uh, it, it's a very different experience from the way most people drink wines, and it and it 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 forces you to value different uh, characteristics in a wine than you might if you were having a bottle of wine with with a meal. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep all that in mind when I'm when I'm doing that, but I'm never really happy with that method. Yeah, because I was going to say that um, it seems to me that a lot of wines, especially good ones, and I think especially French wines, for instance, um, are meant to be drunk with food, and the character of the wine will change. Like some wines just don't taste as good without food. And so... You know, it might be a totally different experience well, from somebody it's, it's, from what you experience. It, as it's a not just French wines. I think that's a the sort of uh, uh, historic European mentality for wine was that it, it was generally something that you drank with food. Not always, but but most of the time. And and I think that was really the attitude in in this country for a long time. And it's been it's kind of been surprising to me recently. Uh, to see statistics, uh, 
in indicating that almost a third of, of serious wine drinkers do not drink wine with food. They just drink it on their own in a bar, at a party, and right. you know, with well, a snack or something. The, it's become the default drink. I mean, people tend to drink wine more than they drink cocktails, even though cocktails well, are beer, kind of coming though. back. Beer is probably number for one. A younger, for a younger generation, but people, you know, paleolithic types like me, definitely you, tend yes. to drink more you wine. You growing up, definitely. Yeah, I well, mean, I, beer I, was back in the Middle Ages for me. <laughs> I personally think that that wine is at its best with food, and there's something uh, the uh, uh, the combination brings out the best in each other and can create mm-hmm. a, a whole that that is better than than the parts. Why do people say that artichokes are terrible for wine? <laughs> um, I love artichokes; it's my favorite vegetable. Because, it's never stopped you, Katie. Yeah, I know, you know it hasn't, <laughs> and it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But I have heard that people uh, say that you know there again. are certain chemicals in artichokes that, that can deaden the the mm-hmm. uh, flavors. Do you think of, that's true? Uh, uh, I think champagne and artichokes can be great together. Hey, but champagne goes with, with I'm everything. Ready to try, yeah, right. Well, the first uh, we have a, a couple more questions for the first half of the interview, and then we're going to get into to kind of more like bigger picture things. Also, a little bit, Eric, about your past, um, but. Um, a couple of uh, last questions. First of all, have you ever gotten your tongue insured with Lloyd's of London or something like that? <laughs> you know, that just seems like the one of the the stupidest things ever. It's like, but uh, it's it's your. I mean, it is your. I mean, what gets you paid in a way? I mean, that tongue is a very important tongue, right? If it's and your nose too, and if you're supposed to be able to distinguish wines and the you tongue know, and the nose. I don't know. It it just seems like a silly thing to me. And uh, no, I. I no. Someone has not. Okay, because someone has. I mean, that's why I mentioned it. There is this man in England who I think is a coffee taster, and he was responsible for such an increase of revenues for that coffee company that, that they, they insured him. So, um, I mean, one of our last questions for the first part is, is quality generally going up or down or staying the same? I mean, are more people figuring it out, um, you know, how to make great wine, or is it still the domain of a few people? I would say that uh, overall, the quality of, of wine around the world is, is is superior to what it's ever been at any time in, in history. And, and I've said this before, it's the greatest time in history to, to love wine because you have access to, to more great wines from more places around the world, a so greater true. diversity yeah. than ever before. There's also um, more boring wines than ever before in history. <laughs> um, not but there's few names, but there but are fewer bad wines. Yeah. But so what makes a bore what do you think is a boring wine? Not naming names, but just like what what is the style or or what is the problem one with the dimensional wine when you call it boring? Well, um, I, I would I would put it this way. There's a, a the the vast majority of wines are mass-produced um, beverages. Yeah. And they are fine. They're palatable. There's nothing wrong with them. There's there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, buying uh, orange juice by the carton um, or, or uh, ordinary, uh, you know, uh, a can of coffee from from the grocery, but it's not going to compare to something that's that's made with care and passion by people who are uh, very serious about uh, translating the qualities of of the place into wine. And uh, it's it's just a very different thing. It's strange to me that even today, when we know enough about food to distinguish between 
mass market foods and fast foods and and really fine foods that we still think of wine as as all one homogenous whole and and of course that's that's not true right wine it holds a very interesting it, it seems to own all the vocabulary you know for taste description it it also is the one thing that doesn't have to be local like in this whole locavore movement, there's no one ever talk. I mean, they support local wines, maybe, but it's not held to the same. But they have to be good. I mean, people didn't drink Long Island wines for the longest time because they weren't that great. Now well, there's some really good ones. The whole locavore thing is it. It. I'm not sure it really applies to wine because it's wine is more of a preserved food. You okay. know, it's a way of taking a fresh food and, and making it last for for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm not sure. You know, you would. If you're in Minnesota, you're required to eat olives that come from, uh, you know, very locally. Or, or you will like these olives, damn it! <laughs> you are a Minnesotan. I mean, are you? Are you, you? You can never have olives, and you can never have wine. No, I don't think anybody's making <laughs> that argument. You must eat brats. <laughs> so um, we're going to come back with the final segment with Eric. Then we're going to have uh, Lydia Shire, and then we're going to have uh, Reverend Billy stop by for a segment. Unfiltered with Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco for the latest in vines, vintners, and all things grape. You know, I've been dealing with Grenache from the Rhone Valley for, you know, years, and they've been planting it for hundreds of years, and arguably the Spanish or the Catalans would say that they're the first to plant it, and, but the French will say they're the first to plant it, and that, that the little area, the Côte de Catalan, which is uh, the area of, of France that's right on the mountains, is uh, the, the birthplace of that, and uh, the French actually were the first to plant it. So there's a bit of debate, and that being a historian and a PhD, I'd be interested in your point of view. I'm going to keep it old school and go with that. It's Catalan, not Spanish, not French, because part of the regions up in northern France, uh, southern France, are Catalan. So mm-hmm. we're just going to say Catalan. Okay. We're not going to get into territorial boundaries because Napoleon wars. Who knows? You know. Um, I would say that Grenache Blanc for Americans is going to start fitting our palate as we move into more spicier foods, as we start moving into. Uh, uh, more coastal areas, warmer weather. I, I really see Grenache Blanc taking on a Sauvignon Blanc type of market in uh, certain aspects. And it's going to have to do a lot more of what we eat and how we're living our lifestyle, more outdoors. Uh, I really see this type of wine as a Mediterranean wine. Mm-hmm. And I see it becoming like the Hamptons wine or mm-hmm. the uh, uh, blue-collar Breezy Point type of wine in uh, Brooklyn. You know, it's, it's going to be an outdoors, beachy type of thing that uh, maybe a Chardonnay doesn't have. 
Welcome All right, back. we're back. Uh, With Eric Asimov of the New York Times. Um, that was a clip from our show, Unfiltered, which airs on Tuesdays, so you with, should tune into that. With Brian DeMarco and so, Eric Fitzpat- Aaron Fitzpatrick. What did you think of that? Did that? Yeah, did, did you, you agree? agree? Garnacha Blanca? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's really kind of uh, counterproductive to try to figure out what's going to be trendy next. And who, after all, who really cares? Um, you know, there's so many uh, uh, great lines out there now. And, uh, you know, if, if something has to be new, that means in, in, in wine time, it has to be planted and it's going to take uh, decades to, for, the, for the grapes to be available unless you're just going to graft some vines over in the most inappropriate places that, in the way that happened with the Pinot Noir boom and, and the Merlot boom and... Uh, you know, it's it, it's just uh, pointless to try to to predict that sort of thing. Grape. Yeah. I mean, well, it's- Katie, Katie got this uh, quote from you. She is our um, amazing research person. And, and Eric, once this is an excerpt from uh, Bottle Notes, or I, I don't know where it's from, but you wrote or you said, it's hard because we don't want to encourage the wineries to give us free stuff. And we don't bill our tastings as these are the 10 best or these are 10 good uh, rather you ra- rather say these are 10 good examples rather than these are the 10 best so who does have to be pleased like who are the culture makers who are the power brokers for reviewing wines i mean there's certainly the new york times um i think there's uh, you there's know robert, robert parker, parker hugh johnson so like and how well, does that work tell us about the whole rating system and and and, and who is really shapes this wine culture this is a it's a huge question and and it's one of the most fascinating uh issues of the last 10 years um because for for so long uh, the voices of, of Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator had kind of dominated the uh, 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 you know what should people buy issue in, in the United States and what and, was it pushing? I mean, can you just describe it before you move on so people understand? Well, you know, you're you're getting into a very uh, hot button issue right <laughs> now, and uh, it's it's very hard to make uh, big generalizations, but there's there's no doubt that. Um, both that the spectator in a more kind of uh, narrow way, and, and certainly we're talking about American wines here, but, but not exclusively, and Parker in, in, a, in a more complicated way, have pushed uh, riper, fruitier, stronger, uh, softer, oh. uh, partly stronger in terms of alcohol. But I don't think that's ever that's been a, a sort of a, a, a side effect of the kinds of wines that they've uh, uh, really liked and you know it's it's not to say that they have driven the the whole wine industry but that's become kind of a dominant style or it became one because there there've always been uh other voices and there've always been other tastes and um for a while they've been in 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 a kind of a narrow minority and now I think there there's an expanding minority uh seeking Wines that are that are uh, more elegant, uh, uh, less fruity, more uh, mineral, for lack of a better word. Um, and and in the last ten years, as you've seen the the sort of uh, explosion of the internet, uh, you've seen many other voices um, 
There are uh, lots and lots of but wine bloggers. And, and even even do in an matter? empire like the uh, the Robert Parker, you know, Robert Parker's not the only voice anymore. Uh, he's got other people reviewing wines, and and you know he's not even going to be reviewing California wines anymore. So um, you know what what had been a a kind of a centralized uh, power is now becoming more diffuse, and I think that's uh, that's that's great news for consumers because you can find lots of different voices and increasingly many different styles of wines. So that was a problem, you think, in the wine industry that it was kind of dominated by a few voices rather than. The masses, and, and now that I mean, now that there are more voices, do those voices have you know the something? I don't, I don't want to characterize it uh, as a problem. I don't think that the problem is uh, the wine spectator and, and Robert Parker saying what they believe. The problem is when you have uh, a wine industry that slavishly follows what they think are fads instead of making the wines that they like, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it, there's an economic incentive. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. In southern Italy, um, there was a, a period of time where a lot of uh, farmers who couldn't really make a living anymore selling their grapes to cooperatives were given big loans by the government to uh, uh, create their own wineries and, and make their own wines, which, you know, after selling locally for many years, suddenly they were going to be part of a globalized economy trying to uh, export wines to the, uh, to the states, and they had big loans to pay back. And it was a fact that if they got high scores from Parker or The Spectator, they'd have a better chance of selling their wines. And so they're kind of in a bind. You know, do we tailor these wines because we have these uh, great economic pressures on us? Or do we make wines that we've made historically that we like that fit in with our culture some people people went on on both sides Mm -hmm. of that that issue um but but more to that point it's been people in in producers in this country you know just they change change the way they're making wine and uh there are all kinds of buzzwords to uh rationalize that you know we're trying to uh we only now harvest our grapes when they are physiologically ripe we didn't know that 20 years ago mm. no they've just decided that uh we're trying to make riper wines now and we're we're going to rationalize that it, choice. it does seem like it's somehow implied that it's easier to make a robert parker friendly wine because they're like if we have to do this we'll do this now left to our own devices it would take us years to try to perfect a subtle complicated wine but let's just go with this it's like a stronger wine or i don't know so not stronger it's a more forceful one-dimensional i don't know i I don't think i think that's that's you know you don't want to sell parker short you don't want to sell anybody Short. I mean, these are these are well, serious people. Well, obviously, a lot of people responded to his taste. Absolutely, and yeah. you know that's why people bought those wines. If they didn't like what he what he suggested, then he would not have been in business. So, well, you know, there there are two sides of that. There are people who will argue that uh, Parker pushed a a very ripe style of Australian wine mm-hmm. that people bought and. Uh, and found out in the end that they didn't really care for that, and and so nobody's buying Australian wines anymore. I, I can't, I can't really say whether that is so or not. But I think it indicates that uh, it's it's a complex question, and to to lay blame on, no. on one or or uh, to or heap to. praise on on one entity is is very difficult. 
Yeah. Let's yeah. I mean, his. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know enough about it. But I was Victor. His wines were like a braised meat. You know, they were like a heavier kind of something, whereas some of the wines that I would like would be maybe looser or more complicated or more subtle or more surprising over time, not just like a one-hit wonder kind well, I of think shot. Of Parker, the that's Parker just me personally. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like the California style is kind of what I think of as these very big, rich, round, fruity, yeah, like round. black currant. Well, here, here's what I would say, you know, flavor, again, I, I want I, I like, but, you know. I it's want to make it, an analogy to the to the food culture mm-hmm. and the wine culture is, you know, maybe ten to fifteen years before or behind food. Mm. Uh, we've known for a long time now that um, although you may have issues with the term uh, organic foods, foods that are are made without uh, additives or or sprays if they're uh, hormones, whatever, uh, are are better in a lot of ways. Um, wine, nobody really thought about at the same time. It was much later. Um, I think now if you go to California, you will see a lot of producers are, are going their own way, just as the, as the small food producers did at the time. They, they wanted to break out of this kind of larger culture of scores and reviews from, from the, the big powers and are making wines that they love. And now they're getting attention for it. Mm-hmm. What about biodynamic wines? That's a new term that people. I mean, I don't know. It's not a new technique, but it's a, it's a, it's a marketing term that's getting thrown around a lot in terms of wine. Do you think a lot of winemakers are going towards that biodynamic style as because it makes better wine or because it's a marketing tool? Well, it's uh, it, it certainly is a, a marketing tool in <laughs> in a lot of ways, and. Um, you know, when you first started hearing about European producers who were using biodynamics in their vineyard, a lot of them were very reluctant to talk about it because uh, they didn't want it to become a, a marketing term. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, do you either like the wine or you don't like the wine? Don't don't worry about how I'm making right. it. Now it's uh, it, it's become very much of a of a charged term, and I think that. Uh, you know, simply saying that a wine is biodynamic means nothing. I mean, how, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It, it means that those were my agricultural methods. But very um, great winemakers who have conducted side-by-side experiments of, of making wine with grapes grown biodynamically and making the wine of grapes grown in other methods uh, decided that the biodynamic grapes made better wine. They can't prove how. Um, it certainly protects the soil, right? A yeah. little bit more. I mean, so, I mean it, it can't hurt. It can only be good. It's usually good, but it certainly can never hurt. I right? think where the, the big arguments come nowadays are, are not between uh, conventional uh, uh, viticulturists and, and biodynamics, but between people who practice some form of organic and some and people who practice biodynamic and the extra steps that you take uh, to to be biodynamic, which seems so bizarre and ritualistic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is the Italian and French view of organic and biodynamic the same? And I, I, I then ask you to talk a little. I mean, is it a universal like uh, definition? Because it seemed like Italian guys would be dropping that word all the time, but no one really knew what it meant over there, or knew what we thought it I, meant. I, I think the definitions are are are. Are different. I think each um, 
I, I'm not sure in the EU whether you still have different definitions by country, but certainly in Europe and in the States, you have different um, uh, bureaucracies uh, defining exactly mm -hmm. what it means, just as you do with the, the definition of organic. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, for instance, Gambo Rosso and Slow Foods, uh, Trebicetti and um, that? I mean, it was there are there Bible, international Bibles that you look to as a real resource, or do you guys just kind of taste wines yourselves and and just judge on your own tastes or you know do you ever look to other experts in other places um i i personally i don't really care for ratings i i think that uh ratings do more harm whether it's uh you know the 100 point scale that we use or whatever uh uh trade or or anything like that um one of the things i learned and and forgive me if uh if i'm now going to uh uh criticize anybody any of your friends <laughs> but um, i have no friends yeah, so. the slow food movement in <laughs> in europe is, is very different from uh the way it started out here when it started out here in this country very idealistic and and uh well well-meaning yes that was me baby it, that was you no i'm kidding no but it, it was, was but, you. but it when was i went active it but, was active but when I went to Europe and, uh, you know, saw that, that this had been in place for, for quite a few years and there was a bureaucracy and there were politics and there were, you know, favorite sons and, and people who were not favored. And then when the official line switched, different wines got favored. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's a little bit uh, disillusioning as to what the real importance of, of their imprimatur mm -hmm. is. Yeah. So, no, to answer your question, no, I don't really follow what... Uh, uh, particular critical organizations say although i have you know there are writers there who i i who i believe are are intelligent and and write meaningful things and i care a great deal about well i mean we could have gone on forever we haven't even talked can we talk just for a few minutes about the 25 and under i mean that is yeah a, i know we didn't should get it be even the 50 and that. under and, yeah uh, nowadays <laughs> Because I, I, you've kind of veered off of it. I mean, it's sort of loose. It's kind of a loose term. The well, I know. Let's this be point, honest. Right? In in nowadays, in twenty five and under, they they don't veer off anymore because they don't. They've had to real. They've really cut back on the kinds of restaurants that they uh, review. I mean, and they're very serious about keeping it under. Back when I was doing it, uh, and I did it for twelve years. Yeah, and you, you conceived this twenty five yeah. and under. I mean, what a powerful. Uh, part of, of New Yorkers lives right? I, I was not alone I mean you know but it took a long time to to get like an institutionalized uh, a dedicated space for inexpensive restaurants in the New also York with no ratings I love it Eric yeah. stays true to himself it's yeah. just if it's mentioned it's a good example but um, you know it, it, at, at the time I wanted to talk about neighborhood restaurants and um, you know in Manhattan as, as as time went on those became more expensive and um, I, I once had a discussion with some of the uh, higher-ups at the Times about changing the names, and I, I was told that 25 and under was the brand. So, you know, you shouldn't... Don't think of it as a as a kind of uh, inelastic hmm. uh, limit. 
But now there actually are a whole flock of new restaurants that are opening up that truly are 25 and under that source from really good farms mm-hmm. like the Meatball Shop or even Roberta's where you can definitely eat a nice Absolutely. meal here for under 25 yeah. bucks. I mean, there's really more and more places like that happening in Lower Manhattan and in Brooklyn Or the especially. pork buns at Mama Fuku. It almost yeah. seems like fast food is actually not that much cheaper, depending, of course, if you have wine or how much you're going to eat. But you can go and have pork buns and a little salad at Sambar and walk out for $14 or well, something. Well, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's Absolutely true, except that we were thinking about the restaurant as a whole. So, I mean, there are plenty of restaurants where you can do that, but but we were looking at the at the high end of the menu and right. saying that you know you should be able to get anything you want and right and an appetizer, main course, and a dessert. For and you know, eventually it became not necessarily twenty five and, and under, but but moderately priced, whatever mm-hmm. that that sort of uh, floating definition meant at the time. So uh, my friend Toby, my best friend Toby, uh, his dad, who sadly passed away, took me to Grand Sichuan and taught me that if it's spelled with the Z. Sitch one and not an S, it's a good sign that it's going to be a decent restaurant. And then there was your review plastered all over the restaurant in the menus and all that. So that was a kind of interesting story. Grand Sitch one on 51st and 2nd that uh, he had written you some letters, I heard. And well, well, this was a, a, a small restaurant that originated in Chinatown, and there was a, a kind of a, a mixed ownership. One of the owners started opening up branches ar- around the city, and uh, got this. Was, I guess this was in the 90s, and he started writing me long letters about the, the restaurant. Uh, <laughs> John Zhang was his name. And, uh, I mean, he sent me notebooks of, of his notes about the food, and it was so fascinating. His menu is like 50 pages long. It has the history yeah. of every oh, dish. Oh, how great. And, and that always w- is what uh, drew me to restaurants and, and, and draws me to wines when, when people are, are passionate and and visionary, and uh, you know they've got an idea, and they they just have to do it. And, um, you know, it, it may not be the, the best executed restaurant or or the you know the most perfect one but it's always interesting when when people um have something like that in in mind and just driven to to fulfill that vision Mm -hmm. very very interesting well um god we eric i hope we can get you back please come Uh, back you like the food enough to come back and sit through uh another interview with katie and i but this is really, really fascinating. We didn't even talk about your uncle Isaac Asimov or, or your, your blog, father Stanley and your mother Ruth, I mean, who are all in the business somehow. But now we really have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. The, the stories I could tell. Oh, how great. Yeah. So hopefully well, we've we'll broken the ice this time. Uh, we are going to come back uh, with Lydia, Lydia Shire. Shire, who owns three restaurants, including one that's the third oldest in all of Massachusetts, probably in the Maybe country. Maybe in the country, then, yeah. yeah. Lockovers, so. the wonderful Lockovers. If it's the oldest in Massachusetts, it's probably the oldest in the country. I'm thinking. We'll be right back with Lydia Shire. Well, the weekend was too short and I can't lose Cause when the Lord made the working girls, he made the blues
This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to The Main Course. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host, Patrick Martins. Our show today is sponsored by The Hearst Ranch, and we are delighted to welcome Lydia Shire from Boston, all the way from Boston. Um, Lydia is involved in some of the best and greatest restaurants in the Boston area, really in the whole New England region. And um, you were here to do a James Beard dinner, right? Yes, I was. And what'd you make? Oh, it was a Sicilian dinner. And cool. I made <clears throat> I made some spleen and bacon buns. Whoa, spleen yeah. and bacon. Well, that's what I had for breakfast every single morning when I was in Palermo. No it's great kidding. breakfast food. I've never eaten a spleen. What's well, it like? Is it like sweetbreads? Well, it's it's um you know it's an organ meat yeah. and it's sliced thinly. It's blanched first, sliced thinly. You have to take the skin off and then you boil it in lard. Lovely. And then you take a, a beautiful soft, soft bun and you, you know, dig out a spoon of this spleen with all the extra dripping lard, you know, and yeah. put it on the bread. And then you put a little grated cacio cavallo cheese. Yummy. And you squish it in your hands and then you eat it. That sounds awesome, Lydia. Well, thank so that, you for explaining that. Yeah, but, uh, really. No, I mean, but everything tastes better cooked I've never in lard. No, but, I'm but sorry. I did. I did make a beautiful casada siciliano. What is that? that? I worked. I don't at. know. Well, what that how is. do you know how to make all this stuff? Because uh, she's Lydia well, Shire. You know, girl. maybe it's because I'm old enough at this point. I've figured these things out. I don't know what it is. Well, you have one of your restaurants is Italian focused, right? Yes, yeah, Scampo. Yeah, yeah. And town is town is sort of I would say international. Mm-hmm. You know. We we go wherever we want. Kind and of your like first the four restaurant seasons. is uh, Biba. Biba, Biba was my back first. in Boston again. Yeah. I loved that idea. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Lockobers because that's a restaurant that my parents used to go to because I'm from Rhode Island and um, and so whenever my parents wanted to do something really festive in in uh, Boston, they would either go to Lockobers or Joseph's. And um, Lockobers is one of the third oldest restaurants, yeah, right? It's a phenomenal space. If people have never been there, they should definitely go because you renovated it. You brought right. it back to we- life. My partner and I had it for 10 years, Mm -hmm. and at the end of the 10 years, we tried to negotiate a new lease, and David Ray, the owner, um, we couldn't agree on terms. But no, don't get me wrong. He was great to us. Don't tag that, Jack. While we were there. (laughs) And, you know, so now he's taken it over. He tells me I'm coming back in the fall, uh-huh. whatever. But, you know, I'm I'm on a little break right now or hiatus. Right. So. That was a French. Their focus was always French. And I think you kept it as a French restaurant yes. as well, right? A little Austrian thrown in, a yeah. little German. A little so, for instance, um, tell us where you grew up and, and how you did all this. Because, for instance, it's interesting that you would take on, you know, it's almost New York restaurateurs are famous for being French than trying an Italian place or, you know, being Italian and trying a French place and not being able to figure it out. Like, do you have a great palate or would you go and Mm -hmm. live six months in a country and come back and be like, this is what we have to do? Well, it's a simple answer. Um, I grew up in Brookline, Mass., you know, one town from Boston. So you're a real Bostonian, yeah. And both of my parents were um, fashion illustrators and book artists. 
So I grew up in a home with two artists for parents. And they had immaculate taste. They had, we were middle class, you know, nothing more than that. But, you know, when they went out to buy food, they bought the best food, you know. I would get one great new outfit for school each year, but it was the best. It was from Best and Company. Oh, or, yeah, you know, I remember that. A real plaid wool. Sure. You know, so yeah. I, I learned when I was a young child that, you know, quality counts. It's not quantity. Mm-hmm. And um, my father, though he was Irish, and you know what they say about Irish cooks, um, <laughs> he was amazing. He used to cut recipes out of the New York Times. And... Um, he was a very, I mean, when I was a little girl, he would make skirt flank steak in a cast iron pancake griddle. He would spread newspapers on the floor because he knew he had to sear it and really get a crust on the outside. Yeah. You know, he would always season it first, you know, pat it dry, season it. So here I was, you know, four years old, watching my father cook and watching him do it right. Right. So that's what inspired me to cook. And, you know, I learned a lot from my parents. And yeah, was it a challenge being a, a, a woman in, in the Boston area running restaurants? I mean, did you have predecessors? or? Mm, no, there weren't really predecessors. Um, yeah, because you were one of the first women who took over. I mean, when you worked for this, you had mm-hmm. Seasons and you yeah. worked for the Four Seasons Company. I mean, yeah. you were one of the first girls to play in the big leagues right back that, in the, that when there were true. no girls in the in the playing field really at right. all that is true and to tell you the truth of all the men and people i've worked for um i've only had one horror story really yeah actually i've been see men aren't so bad no i love not. men are you kidding me no so I'm I'm very happy. I I don't have bad stories to tell. No, I just thought it might it be. Tough, was it, yeah, I mean, how did, did you they get guys like, to respect you? Who the hell is she going to tell no, me? No, because to do? because I have one philosophy, and that is you. When you go into a job, you look around yourself, you see what everybody else knows, and then you just do one more than them. You work a little harder, come in a little earlier, you know, read a little more, mm-hmm. and do a little more, and then you're fine. People will love you. Yeah. <laughs> Great philosophy. That's very nice. I love it. Maybe I'm going to just do one more just than everyone. Just do one more. Then yeah. I will be loved. Yes. I really That's like right, that. Patrick. You need that. <laughs> do I? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. So, so now, uh, what is the challenges? I mean, um, I want to know, how do your restaurant group tackle, like, unbelievably American dishes, like clam chowder or boston cream pie i mean do you try to do your take on it and make it unique or are you just trying to be dutiful but i mean it's almost a responsibility to take on dishes like that well for instance my lobster stew at lockover i put a little extra sherry in it yeah because i love sherry that never hurts um to tell you the truth i have never made a boston cream pie i don't really even like the dessert you know (laughs) myself personally so I never quite done that. Um, but no, I think that, um, you know, flavor is still number one. You know, that's what we're paid to do, to put good flavor on the plate. Um, I love fat. I love salt. Yeah. Um, thank God Patrick is here with his great pigs that I can buy from Heritage. They're never fatty enough for Lydia. And in She's fact, like, I he said knows. fatty. The first time I ever talked to him on the phone, I said, now I want you to pick me out the ones with the thickest fat. 
yeah. nice skin and everything. So he knows me by now. They actually they have a spec of eight perfect racks, and the slaughterhouse knows the perfect rack means the fattiest. It's like Lydia's version of perfect. <laughs> it's the only one that gets an adjective like That's that. That's great. So Lydia, let's talk for a second since we have Eric Asimov in the studio with us. How do you? What's your wine philosophy? How do you go about uh, figuring out what kind of wines, or how did how do you direct your sommeliers? Um, we have some very talented wine people working in our restaurant. So truthfully, I don't really direct them very much, though they do know that I'm very partial to certain wines. For instance, I love um, Burgundies, red Burgundies. Yeah. Um, I love dessert wines, Sauternes. Um. I'm going to say something awful, which you're going to cringe, Eric. Um, but I happen to like buttery Chardonnays. And I don't care what you guys are going to say. That's you know, okay. Typically, I actually love them, too. No, Eric but, just walked out like of the studio too. for our viewers. <laughs> well, typically, if you are leave work and you want to have enjoy a glass of wine, I want something that's full in my mouth. I don't want something green or acidic or anything. Mm -hmm. I can't. If I'm not eating, I don't want to have acid necessarily in my mouth. I'm with you. Therefore, I like buttery Chardonnays. But, you know, some people look at you cross-eyed. There's nothing wrong with buttery Chardonnays, uh, but dishonest ones I, I don't favor. How do you define dishonest? Well, when you know when you create them with with oak chips and different sorts of maneuvers in the in the winery, I think they're they're imitations of genuine butter, buttery chardonnays. No one's ever called the butter dishonest uh, on this network. No. I think that's a first. That's cool. <laughs> so you like uh, chardonnays, and do you eat at your own restaurants? I mean, yes, are you, you bringing your friends and? No, I do. In fact. Um, one particular dish um, on on Scampo's menu that we opened up with three and a half years ago, it's never changed. Um, we have a tagliata of um, prime sirloin and also wagyu sirloin. And it's tagliata means sliced thinly. Yes. So it's kind of a square of... Um, and I've been to two restaurants in New York, and they, theirs is not as good as mine. Hey. But, you know... I mean, it's it's kind of a shame when you go to a restaurant now and you get a piece of steak and they've taken every single bit of fat off the steak. I mean, how can you eat a sirloin without that little edge of fat on it? And then we make this amazing sauce at Scampo for the um, beef that I, it's a recipe that I learned in Japan. And so everyone else's kind of pales in comparison to my mm-hmm. scampo tagliata, which I'm proud of. So I you have should to tell be. you, absolutely. no, absolutely, no. I mean, it I'm makes ready sense. to go right now. Okay. Why did you? Um, so when you let's talk for a second about beef and the kind of meats that you buy, because you buy from Patrick for the pork, mm-hmm. and where and your beef is that um, you know like a certified Angus or do you buy um, grass fed? What's your favorite? Since you like fat, I imagine you're more in the in the camp of of um, you know sort of yeah, the regular. I- regular commodity beef than you are in the grass-fed, which tends to be quite a bit leaner. Well, we buy from two purveyors in Boston, John Duar and William and & Company, mm-hmm. and they have great beef. Um, I had a piece of Snake River Farm recently, yeah. and I was a little disappointed, and it was kind of tough. It was uh-huh. a little chewy. Um, we dry, 
um, Bill Keneally and John Duar dry age our beef. Um, so, of course, it has that lush and tenderness Absolutely. that it should. Um, lamb, obviously, we only buy Colorado lamb. Uh-huh. You know, I would never order lamb in a restaurant unless it was Colorado. Huh. Versus New Zealand or yeah, other places exactly. far away. It's such a huge difference. Now, and would, pork from you. Yeah. Would you do things differently if you were in New York? Or do you think the Boston palate and the New York palate, it's like, you know, good food is good food is good food? I think Boston and New York are about the same. It's not if you wanted to compare California, where I lived, and, you know, I opened the Four Seasons Hotel mm-hmm. out there. And that the Californian palate is a lot different than Boston. You know, they eat asparagus at Christmas time. Yeah. I have never had asparagus on our menu on the East Coast, you know, at Christmas. It's a spring item. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, that is that that's one big reason why I love being on the East Coast. Sure. In New is England. that it's seasonal. It's now, seasonal. you worked with uh, Jasper White for a long time, right? Yeah. The fish shack? Is that that guy? Yeah. yeah summer yeah. shack. Yeah. He's an awesome cook. Big fish mm-hmm. cook, which is not my favorite. But Was that the horror story? No, no, no. no. Oh, oh, God. You guys no. are good friends, no, right? No, no. We're, yeah. we're best friends, actually. Yeah. yeah. He oh, is my great. best friend. Oh, how great. Wow. And you worked with him over there, and that's how you met with him? No, then- actually, he came. Um, he took my old job at the Copley Plaza Hotel. Oh. You know, I met him in Rhode Island at the. I went to open uh, La Poget at the Biltmore Plaza Hotel. Yep. And he walked in. He had come back from California and he was given the night chef's job. And I was the chef of La Poget. So he hated that and he said, Well, I need to go to Boston. I said, Well, take my old job. So he did. And then we both ended up working in Boston and we just became fast friends. What do you love? It? What does he do to fish that other people don't? Like, does he have a certain technique or ability with food that's because uh, he is well, famous? Well, his his lobster, his um, pan roasted lobster, is pretty well known. He you know cooks it right in a pan and he adds the chervil butter to it. Yeah, it's really delicious. But Jasper is a pure cook. He um, he studies. He reads. He's written beautiful books. He knows New England food. He made the first Johnny cake for me that I ever had. Hmm. Huh. You know, and he bought um, the grist mill. I can't remember the name of it. It better have a, been from Wakefield, Rhode Island. It, Excuse it was. Me. It, had yes. to be the, yeah. it had to be the carpenter's grist mill. Yeah. The oldest, it's the oldest grist mill in Rhode Island. And we visited it last year with Bob Smith, who was owning the grist mill mm-hmm. and who then um, subsequently um, gave us a bunch of bags of Johnny cake meal. And I make great Johnny cakes. Right, easy there, Katie. Yeah. Remember. <laughs> uh, you well, can be a guest <laughs> next week. No, just kidding. <laughs> I take my Johnny Cakes very seriously. She does. I do, she actually. Really I'm quite does. a purist about those. We're actually uh, thinking of doing a museum of food and drink. We just had our first fundraiser, and that was Katie's idea, and everyone loves it, is that when you walk in, there should be a massive stone grist mill turning, you know, with someone overseeing it. I mean, I don't know if it'll be eaten or Nose not. Nose to the grindstone. Yeah, that's where it comes from, because if it would do uh, too close they would touch it and would burn, burn so really yes interesting yeah so. we learned a lot from that and now would you call yourself a pure cook oh uh, boy i don't know you i mean Jasper I, that. yeah i mean i i guess i am i i read a lot um i experiment a lot i've traveled a lot um i was just telling jennifer lang who i met out here 
today. We were, and I, I told her that you know I've been to Berlin several times, and in other spots in Eastern Germany, what used to be, and I love their potato dumplings. I have tried so hard to replicate a potato dumpling. How is it potato dumpling different from gnocchi? It's different. They use different things in it, and huh. the way they cook it, and they. Um, And mine have never been as good as the ones I've had in Germany. So, you know, sometimes I fail. Isn't that store in Berlin, uh, KDW? Yes, oh, KDW. Oh. It's the best food shop I've ever been really? to. Yeah. So I had a big giant, it's called Eisbein. It's, you get the whole leg of pork. It was enormous. Mm -hmm. you know, it was like about three, four pounds of pork. <laughs> that you just order there yeah. in one of the restaurants. You order at one of the stalls. Yeah. And I sat down with these three gigantic German men. And I just pointed to what they were eating because I couldn't speak German. And um, so they brought me my own. And it was quite a defining <laughs> moment. <laughs> In my pointing to food. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. You showed that you were one of the boys. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I, I asked this question to both uh, Lydia and to Eric. Um, you know, kind of what is the state of, uh, you know, U.S. gastronomy? I mean, the state of U.S. wines, the state of U.S. food. I mean, that's a, a complicated question. But, you know, outside of your restaurant groups or the wines that you taste, like, where do we rank or how are we as a, as a culture, as a country you know with regards to food do you and think we're taste, there yet and especially taste, taste. Yeah. like how do people you know with the fast food culture being what it is it's like how well are we ramping up everybody's taste buds i guess do you want to go first eric or do you want well i'll i'll talk about wine um we're still a, a extremely young wine producing country um yes we've we've made a very uh, profitable industry out of it but if you consider that the the great wines really are expressions of of culture and uh in the european sense they're the the expression of of hundreds of of years of of community that have gone into these uh wines and thought about what to plant where and that happens at a at a much uh more accelerated rate now, but we're still in this sort of early stage of, of deciding what goes best where, um, and not from a marketing perspective. If, if it's uh, uh, 2011, we're going to plant uh, more Grenache Blanc or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's what, what will this uh, land in this climate, in this place make that is going <laughs> to define our culture we haven't gotten to that point that yet time. but but yes that takes a lot of time and what do you think Lydia? Sure. things have changed a well, lot since you got into yeah, the industry yeah i i'm a little bit worried truthfully um i think someone who spoke it best um was julia child i cut out this article that you know was in a magazine and i ripped it out and i've kept it ever since because she said quote unquote um If the scarehead nutritionist zealots take hold in America, they are going to kill gastronomy. And, you know, it's, it's from that time of where you'd pick up any kind of a publication and somebody was knocking bacon or knocking, you know, I don't know, you know, cream or butter. Um, although Savoir came out with a whole magazine with butter on the cover. And yet, you know, p 
people are criticized for using butter and, yeah. and people shy away from you know fear of fat it's it's um you know i just wonder how our children are going to grow up with this fear um and you know i mean that's why again i'm not just because patrick's here but thank god there are people that are growing foods the way they should be grown and you know there's such a great community out of there out there of people who love to cook and who want to eat sensible meals and have a salad at lunch but then you can have a little butter melting on your steak. Why sure, not? Absolutely. I mean, the French have been doing that for centuries. Why? Because it tastes good. Yeah. Because it makes sense to put a little piece of butter and let it melt on your steak. And also, if you're at a restaurant, go all the way out. Go all out anyway. You know, for those few extra, oh, you know, party when you party and stay conservative when you're conservative. But it's crazy that people go to a gastronomic experience like eating at Scampo, but they're like, but hold this. Don't do it the right. way you would normally because I'm trying not to gain that yes. much weight or something. Never mind like that. allergies. That's oh, just yeah. like totally. Do you ask? Do you always have to oh, ask? Oh, no. We, we do it straight by the book. You know, mm. we have it written on our menu. But there are so many fake allergies out there right now. And it's. <laughs> It's just people who kind of want to be feel special and give well, you I even a list think it's of, like a control thing. I mean, I is. really think it's like they they feel like their life is somehow out of control, so they can control what they're eating by saying, "Oh no, I can't have that." Do you think the the gluten issue is one of those? I mean, suddenly oh, all these people oh, can't have God. gluten, and yeah. no, it's totally because I have a very good friend who has a gluten allergy and she eats bread occasionally, right. When so she wants that? to. Yeah. She kind and of hides I, it and she eats bread. I heard somebody recently say they were allergic to pol- to chickens. I'm like, how do you be allergic to chickens? How no, is that it's, possible? It's out of control. It, uh, yeah. it belittles the people that do truly have allergies. Then they get thrown in with this yeah, whole mess right, of Right, because uh, I truly have a food allergy. <laughs> you do? Oh, yeah. you don't like fish. No, that's I'm allergic. Not an allergy. That's No, but I'm allergic to mustard. But that's like being allergic to peanut butter or bee stings. It's just mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah. But to go back to what you were saying about the fear factor, there was somebody showed me last night, this, actually the Frenchman who trained me as a cook, um, was showing me an article that I think is in this Sunday Times book review section about a new book about all of the fear mongering in the food industry and how you know people are, are growing up with these kind of very distorted and fad related uh you know issues around all these different products as you say like bacon or butter or whatever it is and you know there is no question that some of the products that have been introduced into our food supply through processed foods have had an impact on people's health and i think that there's kind of a you know people get scared about butter but the real problem is is that they're truly ingesting you know a week's worth of sodium in one can of soup or something you know what i mean it's like that's where I think, well, you know, we need to be paying a little more attention. Well, it, it scared me when I walked into my closest Whole Foods where I live in Western Mass. It's in Sudbury. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and they had done the store over, you know, and usually when you walk in, you hit the um, produce section first. Sure. Well, at this store, they had all packaged foods to go. Wow. Now, that's scary. That's almost telling people. Don't forget cook. about cooking. Yeah, why Just bother? Just buy something. And again, the first time I ever saw a chicken breast. Now, you know how dry chicken breast can be. Yes, I do. It was sitting in a package. It had been cooked who knows how long ago. It looked as dry as shoe leather. And it was sitting there 
in its getting older, waiting for somebody to buy it. Yeah. Mm. Now that's scary to me. I agree. What about vocational training in um, schools? This is something I bring up all the time about the fact that nobody knows how to cook anymore. Like people are growing up with so much prepared foods that there's no, I mean, you were talking about how your parents would cook a lovely matter. meal. People Pat, yeah. want fast food anyway. Patrick there should says be it doesn't matter. Fast and food I, think it's, I think it's criminal I mean, that people don't know. Mm. I, it's not that black or white, but I always think like, Mario Batali or Tom Colicchio or David Chang should open a series of gas station, you know, pork bun stops because people want to eat that way already. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking like Kansas, Missouri. You know, fast food is is a great way into the Americans because heart because I think that's how they eat. To say that you know someone who has four kids and two jobs is going to learn how to master kale, you know, at the farmer's market. I think that could happen, but I think it needs to be a two-tiered approach, you know, towards tackling the problem. Talk about fast food. It takes like 90 seconds to make a great kale dish. Right. That's true. That's true. (laughs) I mean, really, cooking does not take that long. Katie, by the time the show is over in the next 70 years, uh, you know, when we stop doing the main (laughs) course because we're both dead, I might give in to you. I might acquiesce. (laughs) That maybe cooking I'll give you is a couple important. lessons, buddy. <laughs> or maybe Lydia will show you how to make a few tricks. But do you think, uh, to Katie's question, kids just don't know how to cook nowadays, so it's a problem from there? Well, you know, I have faith in youth. Um, I feel, I mean, there, there, is so mu- there are so many beautiful books on the market. And there's a lot of good food in America. And I, I feel that as... You know, young children grow up, they have a boyfriend, they start to go out to a nice restaurant. You know, I feel that they will naturally be inquisitive and want to, you know, learn from their mother or start asking questions and do it. So I have faith. Well, I think that kids, I mean, we had um, we had somebody on from Sodexo last week who... Um, or a couple weeks ago, she uh, is involved in in uh, developing the menus for colleges and universities, institutional dining of that, and and they have a student board of directors that helps them figure out what kids want to eat. But one of the things that really surprised me about the interview was that they um, that the kids are very involved in whether or not the food is healthy, whether or not the animals are humanely raised. I mean, there is a great um, there is a surge of interest in that in that in that demographic but whether it sort of plays out into really learning how to put their money where their mouth is I don't know I hope so my my feeling is if you want to if you want kids to grow up to know how to cook you have to get them interested in eating first yes if you love to Mm -hmm. eat if you love good food then you almost want to learn how to cook as a form of Mm self-protection if you're only raised on fast food you don't know you You have have no no incentive well you don't have a palate because i learned i like lydia my parents both were excellent cooks and we always had really, really good food. In fact, I used to beg for TV dinners. So, um, <laughs> so I like an occasional so TV dinner. I didn't. Yeah, right. Well, just because the the little compartments they don't call were those so anymore, cool. Though those don't exist anymore. And I didn't cook man. at all as a child, and I thought it was boring. And my mother used to make me work in the kitchen. I absolutely hated it. And yet, you know, when I was twenty one or two, boom! What did I start doing? Cooking mm. for a living. So. Mm. It does. It did pay off in the end for me. I'm hoping my daughter will take the same track. Well, Lydia, hopefully you'll come back before uh, your next James Beard. You're, you have an open invitation to the network. James Beard, you have to wait for. So hopefully you'll come back. Was that a soon. worthwhile? Yeah. Just for curiosity's sake, was that a worthwhile while experience for you doing the James Beard dinner? 
Yeah, it's probably about my fifth in my life. And um, you had a full house, and yeah, it was great. Did you have press there? Yeah, I very did. good. A blogger and some other people. We wanted to ask: Do blogs matter? Eric Ooh. writes a wonderful blog, The Poor. I suspect your blog is more widely. I mean, wine bloggers. I think it's I probably think not probably a blog. It's probably articles that you premiere well, on the I, web. Right. To be honest, n- no. I I used to write a blog. And I don't anymore. Oh, really? I now uh, in, contribute occasionally to a, a dining section blog. But I had my own blog for for four years. Yeah, and, that's uh, what I remembered. You know, at, at some point, the 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 dining section powers decided that they would consolidate the individual blogs, the restaurant blog, my mm-hmm. blog, and, and create kind of a section wide blog to try to drive more traffic to our our homepage. Yeah. I, I'm not sure whether that was a, a great idea or not. Mm. That's mm. all I'll say. For you, for you, Lydia, do blogs, do you feel like blogs have an impact on your restaurants? Oh, boy. I, I can't answer that. I and would as say far as no. Blogs are I would say with some know. people, yes. Most people, no. Who's a That's big blogger guess. in the Boston area? Who's oh, like your favorite? I, I don't know. No? No. I don't huh. know. Inter- okay, I mean, very I, interesting. Now, how about food section? Who matters there in Boston? Well, I mean, you know. Who is that? Rest- your typical it's Cheryl, reviewers. Um, what's her name? Cheryl. Cheryl Julian. Cheryl Julian. Um, there's Corby Cummer. Oh, right. He's, he's the Atlantic. A great, he's I just a great writer. A, Although, does yeah. he eat? I heard he goes to restaurants. All he does is eat dessert. He's like a um, guy of sugar he, craze. Truthfully, he does not eat. Yeah, exactly. I'm right. He's a I great writer, and I, I he is. must, you know, I don't know, through osmosis, but... He can whatever. probably tell, maybe he takes a bite of something, but he'll go to Chez Panisse and eat, order four desserts. Wow. And that's it. That's so And yeah, then he'll go funny. running on the treadmill. I mean, it's wild, but he does have a good Aww. palate, so... Um, Matt Schaefer is a very good writer. Oh, um, I, he has a radio show, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's great. And where's okay. Annie Copps? She Annie disappeared, Copps is and wonderful. Where did she... Is she is, has she fallen on... Um, she's at Yankee Magazine. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yankee yeah. Magazine. Well, we hope you'll come back, both of you guys. This was a really, really fun been show. Great. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. We're going to come back with uh, Reverend Billy, and yep. then we're going to play a short eight-minute piece uh, with Gilles Véraud, the charcutier for Daniel Ballou. One of the of yeah. really all of the Western world. He doesn't great speak guy. much English, but he the little great. he spoke, yeah. he, he And so we'll have here. lunch with you guys? Yes. Yes. Thanks. We'll be back. seen one live They gotta live in Westchester Not in Queens or in Bed-Stuy When one of them knocks on your door The Shapocalypse is here We're gentrified It's getting weird Push that Homogenizing in the big box Push back Small shops, push back blue. Same stores give us migraines. Push back blue. Where is Ginsburg? Where is Coltrane? This town ain't no super. This town ain't no super. This town ain't no super long. This town ain't no super. This town. Ain't no super, this town 
Welcome back to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're located in the back garden of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Earthaluya. Earthaluya. <laughs> Amen. Please the Lord. We got the Reverend Billy in the studio right now. Oh, it feels good to be here today at Roberta's. Amen. Hallelujah. Sure I'm on my knees to that pizza. <laughs> so now the Church of Earthaluya is also kind of wrapped up a little bit with a stopping uh, shopping gospel it's choir. It's stop shopping so. gospel choir. So tell us a little bit about the uh, Stop Shopping Mission. Well, how it intersects with the foodie world is we've, we've performed and sung and, and blessed more farmer's markets and community gardens. And our saint next Sunday in our church service is your own Severin Fleming. Amen, praise be. Oh, yeah. Severin, who has a show called The Greenhorns, uh, which airs right. every Thursday on Heritage Radio. So... We, we, we decided that the new experiment must take place of actually starting a new religion, the, Earth, the Church of Earthalluia, because we just, like so many people, we're just starting to feel such anguish and fear about the, uh, the degradation of, the decaying of the physical life of the earth and how the governments and corporations are just kind of not dealing with it. Um, I think the revolution is happening down here in the community level, uh, but as far as the big dirty coal and as far as the big extractive industries, the big banks, where the billions of dollars of financing is moving, uh, the CO2 is still increasing every every month. Uh, so we thought even the big NGOs are not really down in the village common shouting, hey, <laughs> How are our children going to live here? This is the air we breathe. This is the water we drink. So we just thought, maybe just start a new religion and and <laughs> a post-God worshiping Earth life religion. So that is, is Earth the God? <laughs> what? Is Earth the God in yeah. this way? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. that is who, who you believe and who you worship and who you protect. That's it. That's it. And we, we actually hold hands and we sing gospel and, and we're from all over the world and uh, you know we're we're most of us left organized religion behind. You know we're a bunch of raving agnostics who love the world, <laughs> the the earth. You know mm-hmm. the the natural world. Yeah, of course. So it's kind of a experiment in post fundamentalism. So I think I so- understand this. But tell us, how does shopping hurt the earth? I mean, and how does not shopping help the earth? I mean, for our listeners who don't know. Well, amen. Uh, our shopping is defined as super malls and chain stores, Wall Street financed uh, corporate corporate shopping, and uh, what happens in neighborhoods and communities? We we don't call that shopping. <laughs> so we just we use the phrase "stop shopping" to just be like a tabloid and make people stop in their tracks and do think a double about, take. <laughs> think about where they're getting their stuff. <laughs> but, yes, exactly. You have to play a movie about where did this? What are the natural resources? What's the labor? When you look at something on the shelf that you're going to buy, you really have to play the whole tape. Amen. You had something really interesting on your website, um, which I, I uh, spoke to Patrick about when we were talking about having you on, which was um, making the connection between all of the 
different natural disasters that we've experienced mm. over the last two years with the tsunami, the earthquake being the most recent, um, you know, mudslides here, hurricanes there. Tornadoes, um, fires, tornadoes, droughts. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. Spasms. And the fact that, that the media doesn't connect any of these, um, there's no been no big expose or no Amen. big no big scientific sort of paper that says, why is all this happening all exactly. at once in the last 18 months? I mean, what's going on? Have the Koch brothers and the Tea Party people made us so afraid of, of uh, climate change skepticism that, that, that we're not going to even suggest the possibility that these, these extreme weather events and... and are not related. Earth they are. They must be related. It's very much as if the Earth is a living being, and the and this living being is having a feverish, kind of shaking off this, you know, virus. Us. Well, that's how I feel. <laughs> I feel like Mother Earth is protesting Amen. mightily. Amen. Hallelujah. She is definitely mad. Earthalluya. Yeah. So, um, how do you, um, Sister Katie, preach it? <laughs> How do you preach? Where do you preach? What is the uh, the tools? I mean, how do you get the, the word out? Well, this piece, you have, I mean, every Sunday evening at thir- Theater 80, right? In St. Mark's yes. Place? Yes. You have a 7.30 show time. It costs 10 bucks, which is no big deal. Reverendbilly.com is your... Um, uh, your uh, Amen. Website. <laughs> Sorry, amen. Hallelujah. Um, is your website. <laughs> and actually, I had dinner with friends last night who have been to your show and absolutely loved it and thought it was fabulous. And they saw the light. Yeah, they told, well, they didn't even. They're like a bunch of their elderly French people. You know? but, they, <laughs> but they really loved your show. Well, energy. we're popular in France. I don't know why, but. How many people are actually like blogging with you or talking to you on Facebook? How many, um, you know, how much of a following you know, have you we, developed? We, how long have you been doing this? Let's start more with More than that. 10 years yeah that's so, what I thought. um i'm not your spring chicken preacher you know what i mean it's, yeah it's uh my collar's like worn down it's <laughs> to the nubbin yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, frayed but, and yellowed but still but still there still there boy hanging amen. out by a thread hallelujah can always get another one at the religious supply store for five bucks amen <laughs> <laughs> or make one stop shopping but that's what I was gonna say. I was yeah. like, buy one. Well, I thought I'd jump in and say that before yeah, yeah, yeah. you, before yeah, you, right? before you before caught Patrick me in my caught you out flagrant there. hypocrisy. <laughs> but you know, preachers are sinners too. Amen. Praise be God, our. Don't we know that our closets are burning with <laughs> indiscretions? But we've oh, been man. we've been doing this since the late '90s. I started preaching in Times Square, in front of the Disney store. Of course, the issues then were, you know, the Disney company stealing the wonder of our children with all their <laughs> flying nincompoop cartoon characters and uh, sweatshops. I mean, the Disney company's a sweatshop empire. Uh, Labor, hitting our kids so hard, making them, getting them to buy things at such a young age. Now they have, the Disney company has something called Newborn and they try to get in there and sell you a onesie with Mickey's face on it before your child is 24 hours old. (laughs) They have a deal with hospitals and they go in and they try to as the parents are either ecstatic or woozy, I have a 13-month-old, and I—I I was one of the last babies born at the Saint, old St. Saint Vincent's in the West Village. And hmm. Lena was just—you know—we were just okay. We're gonna put—we're gonna put a diaper on Lena. Let's say, and we turned, and there's a uh, some white fabric, and I went over there, and there was Mickey Mouse's face. Wow! So, and that uh, was what they were gonna send her home in. I—I I said, can, can we have another diaper? You know. 
Well, uh, let me ask, is there an alternative? Um, you know, I, I understand that you're you're preaching against what's bad, but what is the solution and uh, how do people get around the sacrifices they would have to make, for instance, if they couldn't just go to a Walmart and buy stuff they need? You know, I think, I think the revolution is happening in communities, in Roberta's Pizza, on, you know, community, community media. Uh, we have sung in all the farmer's markets and community gardens in town. I, I just think that, that trading human-scale trading is a big, big deal. And it can't be measured by the Wall Street, you know, the, the faces in the frames on the Fox Business News. It's not going to be on the Wall Street Journal. They don't, they don't have the way of, of measuring it. Mm-hmm. But it, we, know, we know that it's everywhere. It's everywhere. People are just rolling up their sleeves and saying, well, the corporations are not taking care of us. They, our pension's gone. <laughs> I lost my job. And, so then they, and they don't go to work. They start meeting their neighbors. And they start making, they convert that hobby into a Craigslist company, or they, they, they go into business with somebody, they start something on, a, on, a, on that neighborhood level. That Gene Jacobs level of doing things is magic to me, and, and we love it, and that's, we make our gospel songs out of that. We think I'm that's a spiritual that. thing. We think I'm that's into a spiritual Gene thing. Jacobs. Hallelujah. What's your background, Rev? Well, I'm a refugee from the theater world, amen, praise be. Oh, you weren't immaculate conceived by the earth or something? That would have been so much better. I no, believe just kidding. Uh, I came in on, you know, the half shelf out of the frothy waves. <laughs> 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 Let me reconstruct and make a myth now, baby, <laughs> while I'm high on this wonderful cappuccino I just drank. <laughs> uh, but, uh, they must here, have given you a double shot, dude. Roberta's <laughs> Pizza. Well, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to. Preach tonight. Tonight at seven thirty. Is this going out live? Yeah. Hey, amen. Yes, Praise be, children. We have a we have a church right here. Tonight at seven thirty at Theater Eighty. It's the Billionaires Costume Ball. The Billionaires for Bush, or for Forbes, or for Gore, or I guess now for Obama. You know, they just keep updating the end of that. They change their name the way we change the name of our church. Uh, we're getting together. Big costume party. So if you want to. Dress up like a billionaire. This week, I was in jail for uh, leading a, a group of, might have been three or 400 people, big, big flash mob, lots of people from this neighborhood right here uh-huh. uh, in Lincoln Center Plaza, and Dan, uh, uh, Rob Greenwald from, from Brave New Films, and uh, uh, Andrew Boyd, and, and a group of people they rented a hotel room and projected Koch Brothers movies against this Lincoln Center building that it has been named for the Koch Brothers because they gave Lincoln Center $100 million. And, uh, you know, they financed the Tea Party. Yes. They have financed climate change skepticism even more than Exxon has. Out-of-control billionaires. So, uh, hallelujah. I went off to jail. Praise be. You mean because you if were not like, uh, on the cross? I was sitting there on a cold. You bench. created public disorder. Is that was that the charge? I you know I said to the guys you know there are five hundred other people here. What about you know why? Because I why you know, me? I've, I've got big hair. What 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 what? <laughs> but they uh, you know I was walking after the um, I left the I left the de- demonstration and it was just all good feeling and no violence by any means. Uh, it was a nonviolent civil disobedience action. I suppose on some level it's technically private property, but come on, Lincoln Center Plaza? You know, it, I would it, have it, thought of that as a public space. It yeah, was eminent too. domain in the first place, as Jane Jacobs points out. A lot of people lost their homes to make it possible. And then it's taxpayer supported in part. 
It's not just the Koch brothers. It's also coming out of our wallets. And that, that becomes private property when they want us to leave. <laughs> but as I, as I walked away from, there was still a bunch of people there chanting. They had a Sarah, a Jessica, Sarah, Sarah Jessica, Jessica, Sarah Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker. Well, aren't we the little celebrity magazine reader? You get the names <laughs> in the right order, it, baby. Sister Kate. In the gym confess, every week. Confess, confess. <laughs> so I was walking away from that, and it was kind of funny that there was a celebrity in her limo wondering if she could walk through this crowd. And uh, as I was walking away, uh, three bodybuilders in T-shirts just came up and pushed me into a black car. Nice. In front of uh, uh, Savitri and Lena. And... Uh, that's not good. That's not good. I think that now that now that we're coming to the 10th anniversary of, of 9-11, children, is anybody going to give me an earth here? I think it's time to bring the First Amendment back to uh, the procedures of the NYPD in our city. Hmm. You're in a park. You're on the streets. We have the right to peaceable gathering. Can I sing something? Mm-hmm. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or abridging the freedom of press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, petition the government for redress of grievances, free speech, free press, free people, protest. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The 45 magic words. All the right. First Amendment. Oh, man. Well, thank you. Very nice. Oh, yeah! Hallelujah. 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 Praise me. Well, we, we only have uh, here, man, one minute. Well, Reverend Billy, we want you back on the network for sure. St. Patrick, thank you say. for having me here today. <laughs> and uh, we are going to come back with... How come with he's a, Saint and I'm sister? St. Catherine. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. We're going to come back with a brief uh, interview with a very famous charcutier who just opened a restaurant uh, with Daniel Balud in front of Lincoln Center, although they had nothing to do with Reverend Billy's Right, And then right after this is the debut of the Mike and And Judy Judy show. Show. Stay tuned for the wonderful Mike Edison, and we'll see you next week. Hallelujah! In the dark, wasting my time in the park, cause I've got nowhere to go. Welcome back to the main course. We are really delighted to welcome the wonderful Gilles Véraud, who is uh, one of the great charcutier working in the world today. I mean, literally the world. He uh, comes of four generations of uh, charcuterie, and he is here um, largely for the opening of the Épicerie Boulou, which just opened up next to Bar Boulou, uh, right across from Lincoln Center, and it's really a fabulous shop. So Gilles, give us a little picture of what's going on here. I know Patrick has a lot of questions for you. How many stores do you have in France? In France, two shops in Paris. And we are looking for the, just at now for a third shop. So we would like to, uh, to cross the river, La Seine, to, to be on the right, uh, right bank. Because uh, for the moment we have uh, two shops in the, in the left bank. When did the first shop open? Uh, it was in '97. Uh, uh, I was... Um, 31 years and with Catherine my wife was 30 and uh, so we were not so young but we had a lot of uh, very good experience because we, we used to work with uh, our family because I am a, I am a son of uh, charcutier near Lyon in Saint-Etienne in France hmm. and my, my wife Catherine is a, is a girl from a family of charcutier too my, grandpa- my grandparents were charcutier uh, before, so this is the third generation. 
generation. Fantastic. Very interesting. And uh, so you grew up uh, making um, uh, jambon parisien with all these yes. charcuteries, yes. you just as a child. When, um, when we asked me, uh, when do you... Uh, when did you know uh, you you will become a charcutier? I think I always know that. Um, I was 11 and a, a friend of mine, uh, the father of a friend of mine, tells me, uh, what do you want to do after? And I was a little boy, I was 11, and uh, I said, I, I, I'll become a charcutier, It's, of course. <laughs> but, but my parents didn't know that for the moment. And so after the holidays, Uh, the man told told that to, to my to my brother uh, to my um, father, and he was so happy. But uh, he didn't know about that. Mm. So I think I always know. Uh, I always know that I will be a charcutier because the um, uh, the shop in Saint Etienne, the, my town where I, I was born, uh, was like uh, in an institution. Uh, so it, it was the Fauchon of Saint-Etienne. Mm -hmm. You know the Fauchon? Fauchon. Yes. Fauchon this, yes, this is a big épicerie in, uh, in Paris, the most famous in the world. And so... Um, well, for New Yorkers I, or I, Americans. I think I was... Um, I've always thought I was... Uh, I don't know if the, the good word, but héritier, you understand? Like heritage. Heritage. You inherited, you inherited the characteristics. Yes. So I had to, to do that. Yeah. So I think uh, I started at, at um, seven, 17 to work in the charcuterie in Lyon, like uh, Daniel Boulou. And um, uh, I think the passion um, is coming after, um, perhaps uh, after a few years. And now uh, this is this is a passion. This is my life. This is a, uh, I take a lot of pleasure because uh, I work in Paris. I work in New York. I work in London, and uh, I didn't f imagine. I, I I couldn't imagine uh, when I was uh, perhaps uh, 20 or 30, I will be one day. Uh, Uh, in Brooklyn to be uh, uh, to be with you <laughs> in a shipping container in Bushwick. Radio. So it's amazing. <laughs> so now, what uh, were you able to do to to open in London, to open in New York? Um, what about your charcuterie made it possible? To you know, I don't want to say mass produce, but la grande production in three cities. How is that? Did you were you very organized? Uh, do you have a big team in place? Like, how are you able to maintain quality? Yes, yes. In fact, uh, we have a, a big team uh, in uh, in Paris. We have um, 30 people working for us, so it's a big team for charcuterie, but it's not a factory. You you see. What's important for us? This is uh, uh, to be to um, uh, to stay. Uh, even with if we um, we grow up with Daniel Boulou, uh, we want to stay artisan. I don't know if it is a good word. Artisan, sure. Yes. yes. So we want to stay. I, I want to stay. I am a, an artisan, and uh, I want to stay it. So. Uh, in in Paris, um, I work every day in my uh, in my um, uh, atelier. I work with my guys. I work work with my charcuterie charcutier, and uh, Catherine is in his shop every day. Uh, but we have chef. We have a, a chef de partie of each each uh, specialité, 
and um, of course uh, without our our team we are nothing mm -hmm. and so uh, we have we are lucky because uh, every three months or every six months uh, a new young man uh, arrive in New York arrive in London because the team uh, outside uh, Paris uh, grow up very quickly mm -hmm. and so it is uh, incredible so amazing. you're sending you're sending your basically your graduates those yes. who have worked with you are now moving out yes, into other sure. cities and bringing the Gilles Véro methods let me ask you are your recipes you call yourself a traditional charcutier so are your recipes your grandfather's recipes are they very old what characterizes them um, as traditional you know um our um, style in Paris, this is a, a combination or um, um, a wedding, perhaps, a wedding between the tradition and the, the modern. Uh, so I love the, la tradition. So uh, a lot of recipes, um, I've learned them uh, in, um, in, my, uh, in my first years with my father, with right. my father-in-law, because I work a long time with my father-in-law, and with the other uh, shops where I, I, I did work um, when I was 20. And so I think uh, and, um, I, nev I, I, I didn't invent something with the head cheese, with the ham, with the terrine and the pâté de campagne, because this is uh, the charcuterie. So I'm not the uh, uh, inventor of the charcuterie and so um, but uh, I'm young 45 but uh, um, I like to uh, I appreciate to um, to make new recipe so uh, each six months so for the cold season and for the hot season I create uh, perhaps eight nine ten new recipe for the customer and that's uh, the same in Paris in London because uh, the people love head cheese. We don't need to change the, the recipe of the head cheese every, uh, every year. Every, uh, but uh, they need a new recipe with perhaps uh, different, uh, different meats. That's mm -hmm. A lot of people doesn't eat, um, uh, don't eat the, the pork. So we have to, to think to, to, to these people. We, we work with the lamb, we work with the, the chicken, the rabbit, and all that. So I have a question um, that's like two-part question. Um, we should have said uh, that, uh, you know, of course, the Epicerie Daniel, you know, Boulud just opened in front of Lincoln Center. It expanded. Um, and uh, how many, and I know you have many new products there that uh, Bar Boulud did not feature. So how many products in total do you make? And what is the difference between the French style and, for instance, the German style or the Italian style? Uh, you ask me only the products in New York? Oh, no, yeah, just in general. You yourself, in your team around the world, do you make 80 kinds of charcuterie or 50? Uh, a lot. So uh, I spoke yesterday with my team and um, no, no, just now we work for free restaurant. Um, for the the main menu so you have dbgb on bowery avenue you have um, barboulou at broadway uh, uh, on broadway lincoln center with epicerie boulou with just uh, opening uh, uh, last uh, last week 
and um, and that's all for the moment <laughs> so you have three plays with Barbolu, three plays and we make now about uh, 50 different recipe in new york oh, just for those uh, three wow yes so it's very uh, uh, when when we started in Barbolu, we had only uh, 15 uh, 15 recipe and now it it starts to be a real um, important uh, um, move uh, for a new um, a new food you understand because uh, yes. the success uh, uh, is really is really there and when you go to um, when you go to dbgb this is a very rock uh, rock and roll place you can hit a lot of different f sausage and we made it um, just for this place because mm. in france we don't make a lot of sausage and so daniel wanted uh, an italian and spanish um, different uh, american mm. uh, austrian and uh, german english sausage so it was a lot of job but um, this is uh, our style of sausage uh, we didn't even invent about that but we we tried to find the the good the best the best one in each country and is, so is there something unique to french unique unique original oh, unique is there yes. something that's only in france yes. but nowhere else like for instance what is it a method a style an ingredient uh we try to to do the same thing in france and uh, in uh, in london and in new york so it's important but uh when we taste in new york and daniel tastes more often than daniel Bru tastes more often than me because he's only he's um, raised in new york um sometimes they they would like uh, a different style a different flavor different uh, uh spice so we change a little but uh in the main um uh, the main line uh, this is the same uh, the same recipe and so to finish with your question before uh, in Paris I think we have um, perhaps a 200 different recipe so this is a uh, uh, very very uh, uh, important we have um, 20 people who works for the for the atelier of charcuterie in Paris well very interesting well Thank you so much. We know you're very busy, but uh, we wanted you to come Thank one you. time for the radio just to leave your mark forever. And, uh, you know, it's a real honor, and we encourage all our listeners. I mean, there, there's truly, I mean, Katie, you and I have been, there's stuff that you can taste at these restaurants that you just can't taste. You know, it does seem the Italian style is totally legit, but it's very different. Very different. The and French these guys have elevated it. Pieces and, and stuff. I mean, you get these <clears throat> things, they look like a collage almost. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Le poulet angelé, it's going to fake, you know, with little vegetables mm -hmm. and things. It's really pretty. But, um, yeah, I think the French take it, I mean, that whole nose to tail concept they have taken, which is sort of the new thing in the United States. Everybody is suddenly waking up to the idea that there are bits and pieces on an animal that you know aren't just a steak or a chop and that maybe we should do something with them yeah. whereas the French have always been very economical very practical in how they use their um, proteins so mm -hmm. um, you guys have you know are really uh, driving a trend here in the United yes. States that I think is becoming more and more successful as you said so we have to wrap it up unfortunately but thank you so much Gilles Véron for Gilles coming Véron. 
um, one of the master charcutiers in the world, and uh, I hope you'll come back and visit us again sometime. Yes, for when lunch. you have more time, yeah. All great. right. Thanks, Benny. We'll be back uh, with another segment on the main course. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.